0: We know that in a real-world scenario, there's going to be timeframes when people need to stay up late and get things done, whether it's deals that are being done, um, projects that need to get done. And so there's, we know that there's going to be periods. And so the, it's not that you're never going to have not enough sleep, but what we need to start to do is that we know that even, as you mentioned, two nights of poor sleep in a row can take two or three days from a cognitive standpoint to recover from. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster the show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind body and lifestyle
1: so i'm here in croatia today of all places with dr mark Bubbs. it's so great to have you here he is the author if you haven't read it yet of peak the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports an absolutely brilliant book i'm um, so great to have you here thanks for coming on the show
0: well, I appreciate it. Listen, thanks for having me. And uh, I'm not in Croatia, but I would like to be, but now we am enjoying some sun here as well. So it's all all good.
1: I was going to say, well, I think we're having a heat wave in the UK as well, aren't we at the moment? So. Well, yeah, it
0: feels like uh, it feels like Spain or Croatia, 30 degrees. So there yeah. go. everyone's <laughs> topping up on the vitamin D, right? Now's, now's your chance.
1: Yes. Exactly. As much as we can in preparation for the winter that's coming. Um, So before we dive into, there's so much that I want to talk to you today. I have a a long list of questions. I think the audience will love to hear more. Um, Can you just tell us a bit, because I know you work with um, professional sports teams and leaders kind of a bit about your background.
0: Yeah. I mean, I grew up um, playing lots of sport, being interested in sport and then the connection between, uh, I got into nutrition uh, along that way and, 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 during my university studies of wanting to get into medicine was really, and this is late 90s, early 2000s, was really curious about the connection between what we're eating, you know, nutrition and a lot of the chronic conditions, you know, type two diabetes, hypertension, all these types of things that, you know, general practitioners, your your GPs would be seeing. And unfortunately at that time, it it wasn't really on a lot of people's radars. I mean, you had doctors that were interested, but it, it definitely wasn't a part of practice. And so for me, that was, a little bit uh, disillusioned i thought okay how do we incorporate things like exercise and sleep and, and, and nutrition and you know that made me pursue uh, a educa- medical education in, in naturopathic medicine which is in canada and the us um, a form of medicine where you use more you know nutrition and exercise lifestyle and because i worked in sport as well i applied that sort of holistic mindset to nutrition and performance nutrition and so you know, today I work with Canada basketball. So I'm the performance nutrition lead for our men's Olympic team, all the way down to our young, you know, 13 year olds and consult with uh, Olympic and professional athletes and work in clinics in downtown Toronto and central London, helping, you know, busy type A's perform their best at work and at home, and then try to navigate some of the, the challenges that come with having busy long days. And Unfortunately, a lot of the noise out there around how we should live or how we should eat and and all this sort of conflicting information that can be challenging when people are busy with their work and all the other things in their life.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? We are so busy. There's so many competing demands, but we can learn so much from those who are high-performing. Um, and achieving at that level. I know in the, um, in the book, you start actually, like I do with many of my own clients, by talking about sleep, something I abused in my former days as a corporate okay. lawyer, yes, um, as right. we as we all do in the legal yeah. profession, um, and just how important it is. And I hadn't, I hadn't realized actually until I, I was reading it that um, that actually was responsible for Federer's turnaround when he was kind of going off track and um, getting back to winning again in his mid-30s um and you talk in in the book as well about how many kind of type a personalities as you've mentioned do get up early but they do Mm -hmm. prioritize their sleep and they go to bed um early to make sure that they can kind of get up and have that sort of dawn awakening and their own time Um, what would you say to people who are listening and really struggling just with that busy format of trying to prioritize and get some more sleep because it's about the quality isn't it as much as the duration
0: yeah. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. You know, the science of sleep with relation to performance is only about a decade old. And Dr. Sherry Ma, who's a sleep scientist, sleep expert, also a medical doctor and I've had on my, on my podcast, her work in the early two thousands was some of the first to uncover the effects of sleep extension. So basically taking somebody who sleeps six and a half hours and giving them an extra hour, hour and a half of sleep on performance. Now, interestingly in her work, she was trying to assess the cognitive benefits of this. And she was doing this at Stanford University with all the collegiate athletes, a big university in the West Coast in the U.S. And the athletes kept coming in saying, "Oh, I just set a personal best in the pool, or I just had a personal best lift in the gym, or I just scored more points than I've scored in a game." And so all of these physical benefits were coming out, even though the actual initial impetus was to study the the mental aspects and the mental performance benefits. And so, you know, that kicked off a whole wave of of research, just highlighting how. From a physical standpoint, whether it's strength, speed, reaction time, or a mental standpoint, whether it's memory, cognition, executive function, you know, all of these things are being impacted. If we could take someone who's only getting six and a half hours of sleep and extending that sleep so they would get, say, seven and a half or eight hours. Now, if you look at the typical person, whether they're in the US, Canada, the UK, you know, the average sleep time is only six and a half hours of sleep. And so this applies to a lot of people. And alarmingly, you know, 30% of people get less than six hours of sleep. And that's when things really start to um, go wrong, so to speak. And so not only is there a capacity to improve mental and physical performance, but obviously in today's environment with COVID, you know, and then this is where we start to see how things intersect when we talk about wellness is that, you know, if you're not getting enough sleep, and this was a classic study done by renowned professor Sheldon Cohen in the early nineties, and they actually, in this study, they inoculated people with the, with the cold virus, which I don't think they can do these days in, in terms of the, the legalities of running studies. But, but back then they gave everyone the virus and they wanted to see what happened. If you got less than seven hours of sleep, how likely were you to be infected? And if you got less than six hours of sleep, and it was pretty alarming. I mean, if you got less than seven hours of sleep, you were three times more likely to catch the cold and flu. Whereas if you got adequate sleep, your immune system could, could fight it off. And if you got less than six hours of sleep, you were four and a half times more likely. And so, you know, when I wrote peak, part of the message was here is what are these elite performers doing that we could translate to our lives? And one of the major themes is the idea of consistency. So whether you're performing at your work or your preferred sport, if you can't show up every day and be on your your A-game, if you simply miss days or you feel run down, tired, or sick, that in and of itself is a predictor of not being able to come compete with the competition. And so sleep becomes this fundamental pillar because if we don't have sleep, all of a sudden glucose control to meals that we normally eat is worse. You know, mental function is worse, immune system recovery. And so, yeah, we open the book with that and it is a, you know, fundamental piece that unfortunately can kind of get pushed to the side when we think, well, there's not enough hours in the day. So I'll just, you know, dip into an extra hours of sleep to get these things done.
1: Yeah and I think it's um it's so interesting just reading all about that but also I think you're right we do we do um push sleep aside way too easily and quickly it's almost like well do you know what I can just skip a bit of sleep and then make it up and that's very true in the corporate environment when you're pushing through and you're trying to get a transaction and but that mm. could actually not be a series of days it could be months and I think in the book you talk about how even two nights of poor sleep Can take quite a few days to catch up on and it inhibits so do you see then in that high performance is it's actually about you mentioned that consistency it's about showing up every day and being that consistent as opposed to thinking well i can leave everything and just have this intense block achieve a lot and then recover later Um, certainly on an athletic level that doesn't work
0: yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one because we know that in a real world scenario, there's going to be time frames when people need to stay up late and get things done, whether it's deals that are being done, um, projects that need to get done. And so there's, we know that there's going to be periods. And so the, the idea here isn't that you're never going to only get, you know, you're, you're, it's not that you're never going to have not enough sleep. Um, but what we need to start to do is that we know that even, as you mentioned, two nights of poor sleep in a row can take two or three days from a cognitive standpoint to recover from So, some great work by Dr. Nora Simpson at Stanford University as well on that front. And so, what are we doing between these bouts when life gets busy? You know, are we able to, and in the research, they call it banking sleep, you know, being able to, if you know there's going to be a period of a week, three days, a week or more that's going to be um, very busy and you're going to lack sleep, then what are you doing in the week or two beforehand to ensure that you're getting sufficient sleep to try to offset that? And you can't do it fully, but that's one of the strategies you wanna start to think about. And the other one is just, if it becomes the norm, like if if getting six hours of sleep just becomes the norm and you're doing that all the time, then it becomes a problem because we know now that you are sacrificing performance. You cannot perform as well um, from a mental standpoint, a physical standpoint. And they actually have, there's a specific gene that codes for a very small percentage of people who are these genetically short sleepers. And of course, all, a lot of top executives and CEOs will say, well, I'm the person who only needs six hours of sleep. And so they put this to the test and it's very small, like less than 0.05% of the population of genetically short sleepers. How much sleep did they still need to get? And the answer was still above six hours. And so the vast majority of us aren't those people. And so we do need more than that. And so it just reinforces, we do need to be efficient with our time. And so if you if we're always thinking just more hours in the day to accomplish something, we've got to become a little bit smarter with how we either train for an athletic endeavor or how we prioritize our time on a, from a business standpoint.
1: Yeah. And that's interesting because that's something you touched on as well in the book in terms of this kind of chronobiology as well. And whether you're an early morning type and then looking at the circadian clock and seeing and looking at as well the differences in athletes and how their performance is, depending on when they were asked to compete, as in what time of day and then what chronotype they were. Um, Now, I know like with exercise, for example, there may be a best time for the average person to exercise, but at the end of the day, it's also the time that they're actually going to exercise, right? So I know, for example, for myself, that you know, if I haven't done it in the morning, it might be better. I might have better coordination in the afternoon, but it probably is less likely to happen because life gets in the way. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of like prioritizing things like that, how much do you focus on people's chronotypes and circadian clocks to sort of find the best time for them to do everything in terms of their exercise, maybe their most cognitive demanding, cognitively demanding work, their creativity and things like that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question and it's one that I think with a lot of things around nutrition, fitness, performance, mental performance, it's easy for us to start to put you know the marginal gains, the small buckets uh, uh, in front of the, the big buckets, right? Or what I call the big rocks. Because oftentimes those smaller things can seem a little bit more Um, You know, they're they're more cutting edge or they seem more exotic or more Mm. appealing. Um, And so when we talk about timing with respect to training, I mean, absolutely the first most important thing is pick a time that you can train most consistently, regardless of whatever time it is. If you can actually stick to it the most at that time, that's going to offer you the best outcome in the long run, because we know whether it's nutrition or training, consistency is the best predictor of success. So if you decide, well, I want to exercise at six o'clock in the morning. And then you show up one out of every four exercise sessions because you can't get up that early, then that's not the best time. Um, and so that would be the first suggestion there. And then when we, when we talk about circadian rhythms, they're definitely you know, important in terms of all of our cells run on this internal clock. And I think one of the big things, you know, I'm from Canada and of course here in the UK, places where it gets dark in the winter months, is that just being exposed to outdoor light really helps to set these, these rhythms, these circadian rhythms. And so it, it seems a little counterintuitive, but in you know October, November, December, when the days get really short, even if, when you're outside on an, even a cloudy day, you know, you're getting 100,000 looks of light intensity, which is being absorbed by the photoreceptors in the eyes. And this is helping to keep this whole system running. Whereas even in a brightly lit office, you know, you're only getting 20,000. And so, you know, in places in in North America, when it's cold out, you know, you go from your warm house to your warm car to your warm office and nobody wants to step outside. And it can be a little similar in the UK where it's, you know, cold and wet. And again, mm. we don't want to get outside at all. But that's an important part of that morning piece would be to get some morning light, even when it's darker and cloudy. So, you know, go out for your morning coffee or tea and walk to the coffee shop, get outside from the office, even on break times in the morning, or if you have five minutes, those things seem small, but they're going to help in terms of, again, you know, keeping those circadian rhythms on point, and also with things like, you know, mental focus and, and cognitive function.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that helps actually, doesn't it? As well, I find if you you get that kind of post-lunch dip, I mean, some of that comes down to blood sugar management, but Mm -hmm. there is just that natural dip, that postprandial dip. If you go outside Mm -hmm. and just go for a 10 minute walk, people often think they don't have time, but actually that light exposure just resets things. And then you've got some really good productivity remaining in the afternoon.
0: Yeah, I mean, between the light exposure and a bit of movement, I mean, yeah, those two things can be great. And and these days, just getting away from technology for five or ten minutes, like getting away from your laptop, and hopefully you can get away from your phone a little bit or put something audio on and not, you know, just getting that mental break. Yeah, it's massive, and it can really reinvigorate so that the afternoon you can be productive.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that that link to that, actually, is one of the things you focus a lot on in the book as well is this concept of recovery. I think people push too hard, or often what I see, actually, is that people – are pushing too hard too much of the time but then they're also kind of not pushing hard enough for short periods and they're definitely not recovering hard enough so it's almost kind of we're not getting yeah. the polar extremes that we need to provide the right dose of stress with a lot of recovery to make us stronger um, what, have, what have you found with that and what would your kind of top tips be in terms of enhancing that particularly as we get older you want to get that balance right
0: yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, especially when you see the intensity at which Olympic and professional athletes train at. Um, you know, for the rest of us who are recreational athletes, and, you know, even if you played high-level sport when you were younger, if you have a, a day job, then you're a recreational athlete. Um, you know, it's more under-recovery than it is over-training, right? And, and so the the training piece would just come from too much volume, too much of doing stuff. You know, we always feel like we want to get those extra spin sessions in or miles on the road and because it's not planned in a really um, organized way they almost become like junk miles if you will you know they they, they're not actually eliciting a big training adaptation uh you know the classic person who runs the same 5k every day right your body Mm. has adapted to that so you're not getting a lot of training stimulus because you do it so often your body is burning fewer and fewer and fewer calories to do it every time because you're getting more efficient And so and it can start to drain the system if you're training too hard um has an impact on the nervous system and so you know as you mentioned we do want to get people you know if we talk about endurance training or even training in the gym for that um more polar training so this idea of when you push hard you know, push hard let's let's really let's really get into that fifth gear but a lot of the times especially when it's aerobic we need to pull people back to being more on the easy side of things, more on the actual aerobic side. Because I think a lot of people would be surprised that even when you go for a jog, if you pass a certain threshold, your body goes from being aerobic to anaerobic. So it goes from breaking down body fat for fuel to flipping the switch to actually breaking down carbohydrates in your muscles much sooner than what you'd realize. And so one of the classic tests that we get people to do would be to take, you know, 180 minus your age. So if you're 50 years old, 180 minus your age, so that's 130, and then take 10 beats off of that. So Phil tone's work, and that would be 120. And so when you're doing an aerobic session, you can't go above 120. But for a lot of people, they first do this, and it's like, geez, I can barely get above a walk. You know, if I jog for even a certain amount of time, my heart rate jumps up even higher than that. And that that lets us know that we need to train that that slow and steady energy system a little bit more. And then when we go to do those intense sessions, we can surely do them, but we're actually spending too much time in the middle. And if you spend too much time in the middle, Mm. that can start to wear out the nervous system. You're not getting the training stimulus. And and so it just becomes, you know, we're not training smart enough. And so this is where you can get people who become, you know, a bit burnt out, sore all the time. They feel like they're not getting fitter or leaner. And so that's that's typically what we would see there.
1: And often they get constant kind of colds as well, don't they? It's when they're in that amount of volume, but... I found a good yeah. way, I don't know if you found this, is when I'm trying to keep things slow, like low and slow, particularly if I go on the watt Bite for example, is to focus on nasal breathing only. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned this from Patrick McKeown, the author nice. of The Oxygen Advantage. And so yeah. as, as long as you're nasal breathing, you're mostly staying aerobic anyway, aren't you, quite naturally. And over time does you'll help, see that sure. your pulse can increase. Yeah, it does help. Um, yeah, and no, do you no, tend no, to advise, know, yeah. oh sorry. Oh, sorry.
0: I was just going to say, that's the thing that you would notice if you, as you do this over the weeks, it's all of a sudden at 120, you can start to jog or run faster at the same heart rate, mm. right? Like you're moving quicker, but you're not going to a higher heart rate. So that's a really big, you know, that'll show people that they're actually getting that fitness that we're after.
1: Yeah, for sure. And do you find that people kind of overdo the the high intensity training? Like a lot of people are kind of going for maybe five, six hit style classes a week. Um, Do you like to keep to to avoid the the inflammation being too high? Do you like to keep those low as well? So you're kind of getting a balance of cardio with some hit, with some strength work.
0: I mean, it sounds uh, counterintuitive, but it's almost like if you're deconditioned or if you're not very fit, then you can do more hit sessions, which sounds a bit counterintuitive, but it's because you're not fit. You can only get up to a certain intensity. I mean, it will feel intense to that individual, but you can't get to those really high uh, intensities. Whereas somebody who's very fit, you know, if we have a watt bike, especially because you can see the the power output, I mean the amount of output you can get from one session is going to be very intense and gonna take several days to recover from. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's maybe where you get some people who become, you know, more fit. And because hit sessions are fun and they're short and we get a nice endorphin rush, uh, it can be easy to kind of get pulled over to those. And you know, they can certainly be a great part of a lot of strategies. I mean, Dr. Martin Caballo's work at McMaster and Canada on all the HIT training. really efficient way but you do need to figure out you you always need to start with your goals like what are you ultimately trying to accomplish because all the other things are just tools right hip training aerobic training hill sprints whatever it is you got to start to figure out which ones will best you know suit the goals that you're after
1: yeah for sure yeah that's a very good point and in terms of longevity you talk quite a bit about blood, uh, blood glucose control keeping inflammation long and also the importance of muscle mass because we develop this anabolic resistance and um, i think you refer to a study in the book actually that talks about how um even just one strength training session was um shown that it would improve glucose metabolism in those individuals sure. even just one session for people that there's lots of people that just hate the gym, right? They just do, and they yeah. enjoy kind of you know cycling. No, they're not necessarily doing triathlon, but they love swimming, cycling, running. Myself included, but I know I have to do the strength training. Where does the the difference lie? Do we all really need to actually lift heavy weights as we age to to counter the effects of sarcopenia, or can you get to, can you get those results with body weight um, alone?
0: Yeah, I mean, again, it's um, it's fascinating how you know, our bodies respond to the inputs that we give it. And so if we don't lift things um, and they don't have to be weights, if we don't lift our kids or heavy things, then the the muscular system doesn't get challenged. And over the course of getting older, especially as we get 50, 60, 70, we know that loss of muscle mass is actually, you know, a predictor of accelerated aging, Um, you know, more so, even more so in men than women, but it's common across both. And so, you know, how do we fit in? Um, resistance exercise now again going to the gym can feel inspiring for a lot of people and for some people it's like oh my god i do not want to go you know that's not for me and the good news is you don't have to um you know if you're if you've got little kids at home and you're a parent then just pick up your kids um you know even when they're getting bigger it's, it's funny how even the children, and there's some great physiotherapists, movement therapists in the U S the children just having to hold on to you is good for their own strength. And you having to carry the children is good for your strength. Now, you know, if you're struggling with back issues or knee issues, you've got to build your way into that. Um, but that's one way to do it. I mean, just simply carrying your groceries home, you know, if, if, especially in these times, you know, take a couple of bags, go more often and, and carry them home. Uh, it's a great exercise for the core strength. It's great for grip upper body strength, leg strength, Little things like gardening, lifting things around the backyard—you've got to be able to incorporate those things. And the tricky part is, as we become more sedentary, when we, you know, when work accelerates or family life or, or what have you, we tend to sit more, and your people are going to have more likelihood of having back pain, discomfort. And now all of a sudden they decide, well, I better not lift that because it might trigger my back. You know, these are the points when we got to figure out strategies for that individual to be able to lift things effectively. Like now is the time because just avoiding it is okay in the short term, but you're, it's gonna catch up to us in the long term. So we've gotta find a way so that you can do your gardening or pick up your kids or pick up the laundry or whatever it is so that you can get some of that, that resistance because ultimately your body, your muscles, which communicate with all the systems in the body, need to be challenged. And so we talked cycling, that's a great way to do it without having a big you know, load on, on, on body weight coming down on, on, the, on the feet and the legs. Uh, but resistance training, finding that right approach is is really key because it does, you know, translate well to longevity.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. And um the other thing you talk about, Ozzy, is is fueling the body correctly and the different types of diets that people do and how kind of engaging in something like the ketogenic diet. Um you can actually end up or even going low carb because you feel like maybe a lot of people do this, don't they, if they're in a sedentary job to kind of counter those effects. They go very low carb or keto because they find that it helps improve that mental cognition and it helps them to stay lean, but you can quickly start to lose out on some of the rich kind of polyphenols in the diet and the fiber that helps to keep their microbiome healthy. Um, And you talk quite a lot about that in the book and about how to keep those gut junctions tight. And I found that um, a a great chapter because it summarizes really well for people, how they can optimize their microbiome. Um, But you also talk about the difference in people's gut bacteria. And how they metabolize sugar and they are more likely to gain weight or lose weight. I think there were some studies done in mice, depending on what their microbiome looks like. Um, and one of the main things is to focus on diversity. Do you have principles that you use with your own clientele and with athletes to try and help them optimize their microbiome?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's again. Just through general, not
1: in specific any problems.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, just quickly, I'll circle back to our ch- previous question there around exercise just to give people a little bit more concrete so if you are really looking for the minimum effective dose for resistance exercise it's literally only 10 sets per body part in a week so you can do in 15 minutes twice a week or 20 minutes twice a week heck even 10 minutes if you start out with you can you can squat push pull things and you're you're finished with your routine and so you know, that's something that you always want to think about what's the minimum I have to do to really maximize the benefit and then as you feel better, then you can start to, to increase that or you can stick with that minimum dose. And, you know, that discussion around fitness then dovetails with our discussion here around the microbiome because we know when we look at athletes, they tend to have more diverse gut bacteria. And so, you know, the microbiome, uh, the gut microbiota, this, all these bacteria, viruses, fungi, yeast that are living in our gut, Trillions of them. Uh, it's a fascinating area of research, but it's it's leading a lot of um, it's creating more questions obviously than, than answers at the moment because you know, are these things driving our health or is our health driving the, the bacteria that we see present? And so you know some of the common themes we see is that again, if we build aerobic fitness, we're going to have a really much better chance at having more diverse gut bacteria. So that's a good thing. So if you talk about it's not just for you know, it's not just exercise to be fit, but it's also for your for your health and how well your immune system functions. Because all these bacteria in the gut play a key role uh, in our immunity, as well as producing uh, vitamins, minerals, etc. Um, now, when we look at how do we balance, you know, how do we improve the gut bacteria? You talked about you know low carb and keto, and I think one of the big things, if we again talk about you know processed foods is that when you go low carb or keto, you effectively eliminate all the processed foods, right? And so you, you you eat more real food. And that's one of the best predictors again, of having more diverse gut is to consume um, more variety of food and more real food. And regardless if you're, you know, low fat, higher carb or lower carb, higher fat, the theme here is that if if you can stick to more real food, then that's going to be a real big predictor of having more diverse gut and again you know the uk canada the us 50 percent of everything we buy is ultra processed right it comes in a box it comes I, I was box.
1: amazed by that that stat yeah i was amazed by that stat when you put that in the book to actually find out that 50 percent of what we buy is ultra processed I, I just found i knew we bought a lot of processed food yeah. don't get me wrong but that to me was just staggering because that's, yeah, it, that's half the spend
0: it's half the spend, and when you look at the Mediterranean countries, we always try to get really reductionist and say, "Well, it's the fish in the diet, or it's the red wine." But when you look at the the, the graphic, you see all the Mediterranean countries. Um, you know, they're all at fifteen percent, fourteen percent. You know, you get to France, it's fourteen percent. Spain's thirteen percent. Excuse me, Spain's twenty percent. Italy's thirteen percent. And so, this common theme. If we look at we try to find the big rocks, the common themes, rather than try to drill down at first is that they're just not eating nearly as much processed food. And so that means, you know, we get far more processed food, which is high in calories and low in nutrients. They consume far more real food, which is high in nutrients and low in calories. And so that's, if you want to simplify things, and that's a great place to start because then it doesn't matter so much whether you want to be low carb, high carb, you know, you can find the right strategy, but if you if that principle of consuming more real food, if you have that, then you're going
1: to be doing pretty well. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, the eating as much diversity, isn't it, within that as well. Just getting that full spectrum of color. It's, it's yeah. so it's such an easy one that people mention, but actually it makes such a massive difference.
0: Yeah, and again, it can be as simple as just grabbing some rocket and tossing it on, you know, a meal. It can be just chopping up some bell peppers or cherry tomatoes. Like start small. You know, I think some people it can be a little bit daunting when we say, well, you got to, you know, add all of these different foods. It's like, well, just add one food a day, you know, some different colors here and there. And with those colors, you're bringing on board antioxidants. And we know that those are really key for, for health and longevity.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and just talking there, cause you make a good point about, um, let's always look at the minimum effective dose for anything that we're doing. So we can make sure that we're optimizing, but using, you talked there about strength training and the 10, um, 10 sets per muscle group and also in terms of diet you talk as well in the book about automaticity and making things a habit and how um, you know, inspiration and motivation are both quite short term, but then so is discipline. And so what we need to do is to use that discipline to create strong habits, because then that frees up mental, mental space sorry, mm-hmm. um, to allow us to focus on more cognitively demanding tasks. But you also don't question it. Um, you were saying, I think, in the book about how when you get in the car, you don't question the fact that you're going to put on your seatbelt. So if you're a morning exerciser and you get up and every day you just exercise, it becomes so automatic. And I think that is something that I've, I've definitely been working on myself over the, the last few years. And I just wanted to ask you, what have you found other things, maybe for yourself as much as your clients, that are the key things to make automatic that then just make everything else easier?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really big theme that, you know, we see the movies, the TV commercials, and it looks like every Olympian wakes up at 530 and they're just dying to get out there. They just can't wait to go train. <laughs> and that is completely untrue. They're like the rest of us. They, <laughs> the alarm goes off and they, you know, they'll mumble or swear under their breath. And, but the big difference is, you know, they just do it. There's no question whether they're going to get up or not. And it's not, at some point it was because they were inspired or motivated. And at some point it was because they were disciplined but that is the really fascinating thing that we think of, even discipline. Like this is a finite resource. We only have so much discipline and we can't keep using it more and more every day to get to where we're going. And I think the example of a, of a seatbelt is terrific, right? I mean, this is one when I was reading the research around, you know, you sit in your car, there's no thought about putting your seatbelt on, right? You're like Pavlov's dog. You sit, you grab, you put it on. And ultimately, with, with whether it's exercise, uh, nutrition, that's, that's where we're trying to get to. I don't want people making food decisions five times a day, every day, right? You've got enough things to do in your life. You don't need to constantly be wondering how many omega-3s or the macro balance of what you're having, right? We want to just have it be, you get up in the morning, these are the things you do. These are automatic behaviors. And, you know, it does take, uh, you know, approximately, they say, 66 days. So just over two months to start developing some automaticity now to really have it ingrained probably longer than that. But, you know, those are some of the things that, become important. And I would say for most people, it's trying to start to, you know, what I call master your morning. How to how do you can you really get your morning dialed in? And that's with, you know, whether or not you exercise, that's up to the individual. But that breakfast meal, you know, what does that look like? Is that dialed in for you? Because we know that breakfast is the meal of the day that we get the least amount of protein. And so protein being crucial for all aspects of life, especially when we talk things like sarcopenia, longevity, aging, it's it's crucial. Um, you know, can we dial in that breakfast? And then, you know, the next piece that I use with clients is, you know, most people don't need to be snacking before lunch. You know, that's just sort of, a we don't realize how many calories we have on our own bodies, right? So even if you're 10% body fat, so you're, you know, you've got abs and cover of a magazine, you would still have 30,000 calories of energy on you, right? You could run around England a few times without anything. Um, and so why do we struggle then from eight till noon sitting at our desk you know we're not even moving yet we're getting hungry and so typically that'll be a behavioral thing right we just get used to snacking at a certain time and so the cues get sent up Uh, it can be the proximity right if you've got snacks around you and i know Giving talks at law firms in Toronto and London, you know, the snack cart can go around. And sometimes I'm not sure if I'm at my seven year old's birthday party or at a, an office space because there's a lot of treats <laughs> and sugary things. And you think, oh, Jesus, that, uh, um, but that idea of trying to, and the other one, sorry, would be the breakfast. So if you've had a breakfast that really drives the blood sugars up, then by mid morning, you're really coming down the roller coaster and now you just yeah. feel flat and exhausted. But to kind of own that morning would be to find the right breakfast don't snack before noon. And that's a great way to get started And because most people drink a bit of coffee or tea. You know, those things are natural appetite suppressants. They help with focus. And so that can be a really nice way. Once that becomes automatic, all of a sudden we've shrunk the day. We don't have to think about that part of the day anymore. And now we're into the afternoon and evening, which, you know, presents its own challenges, but at least we've covered one part. And people are off to a good start, which is a really important part, whether you're trying to be productive at work or, or in the gym
1: and have you found that um strategy of kind of having breakfast to be better than say just going through and fasting until noon and doing a kind of 16 8 model what have you found because i know it's, it's quite different isn't it there's quite a few people i know that listen to this and do do longer fasting and then other people do struggle with it and actually it makes them less likely than to eat healthily in the latter part of the day what's been your experience with that and 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 in terms of breakfast to sort of eat it or not to eat it
0: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, you know, it's a, it's a different strategy and it's got its benefits and has its drawbacks. And so it can definitely be great when we talk about time restricted eating or shrinking that day. So you just sort of have your coffee or tea and you go right through till 11 or 12 before your first meal. Um, And that can have a lot of benefits in the sense of you just freeze up more time in the morning. You can get more things done. And depending on the nature of your job for a lot of people that that provides a lot of mental relief to know that by 10 or 11, you've gotten through a whole heck of a lot of things. And now, you know, it's not so much pressure on the back end of the day. Um, we do have to watch, though. We kind of get married to methods and not about, again, what, what's our goal? What are we trying to achieve? And all, all of a sudden, we're holding on to the fact that we want to be in ketosis or we're holding on to the fact that we falling in love with terms like autophagy and everything else. It's like, well, is this thing still serving your goal? Because, you know, some of the things we want to think about with fasting is that if, if you start going to just two meals a day, then your protein intake will start to fall. I mean, initially you lose weight because your caloric intake falls because you're just eating less. So that's not a bad thing. Um, but over the long haul, we see that for longevity, we do want to get up to 1.2 grams per kilogram body weight per day in terms of protein intake. Again, some of the best researchers, Theo Spoglu leads Beckett in the UK against Stu Phillips and McMaster, you know, highlight that we should be even changing the RDA to that point because it's so strongly associated with healthy aging as we get to 60 uh, and, and and older. But if you're only eating twice a day, you're going to really struggle to get to 1.2. And so the suggestion I would give people, it's great to shrink the day if you want to, but still try to get three meals or two meals and a snack in there um, because you're still going to get all the benefits of kind of not eating for that period of time. Um, but you're going to also be able to get enough of the good stuff in uh, protein, nutrients, fiber, et cetera, to support health.
1: Yeah, for sure. Because otherwise you're kind of you're just, you're going to be losing muscle mass, aren't you, with that weight loss naturally anyway, at the same time. And so then if you're limiting protein as well, that's even worse. And then that has a detrimental effect on your metabolism in any event. It then becomes harder to stay lean and healthy.
0: Um, yeah, it gets so confusing yeah. because we do see some research that showed, and these are associative studies that showed between 50 and 60 you know, lower protein was associated with better aging. And and this is where it adds a level of confusion with with, with people. And, um, and, you know, when we look at the research, we do have to just be mindful that, you know, a lot of these studies are just going to be associative studies. And so, you know, I'm a Toronto Raptors fan and NBA, if I just wear a green shirt and they win, then it must be my green shirt that's doing it. I just keep wearing the same shirt all the time and we're going to win every game, right? So association isn't causation. And so this is where you know, for most people, if we can get the protein intake right, what we, what we often don't realize is the protein brings on board the vitamins and minerals that we're after. So more protein, more vitamins and minerals. It's, like a, it's, it's basically like a multivitamin. And that's regardless if it's animal or plant-based, right? So the nice part is whatever mm-hmm. strategy you like there, you're still going to get that benefit.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, thank you. And so the, the, the kind of last area I wanted to touch on, because I think this is really, really important, is mindset and there's quite a few components to this that you talk about in the mm. book, and, and I've listened to, to a few of your podcasts as well. Um, the first one is that was interesting to me is the use of affirmations, because I think this, this is something that some people are just like, oh, I can't do that. It just doesn't work for me. I can't just repeat something. Um, mm-hmm. but you talk about the importance of them for, for for individuals, if they can use them. And almost as if those that feel they can't might need them more and how people mm-hmm. like Serena Williams have used them. Can you break down for us affirmations and the way that you use them so people can kind of better understand it?
0: Well, I think it's, um, I mean, mindset, when you look at elite professional sports, I mean, they often talk about the six inches between your ears is what separates the, you know, the truly greats from the not so greats. I mean, you know, whether it's a golf or tennis, the, the the difference in skill between a lot of the players is, is very minimal, right? It's, it's that belief. You look at a player like Novak Djokovic. I mean, how does he always get the ball back when you look at other players who look perhaps more athletic, more powerful, uh, more agile, yet they can't do what he does. And so there's that element, you know, you talk about women's tennis, if we stay on tennis, Serena Williams as well, just that that mindset piece. And I think the, One of the things that we don't realize is naturally as humans, we default to negative thoughts, right? We're from an evolutionary psychology standpoint, we're worried about what's around us in the environment. And so we default to, um, you know, negative thinking or worry. If we circle back to our initial discussion on sleep, we know that if your sleep total falls, if you don't get enough sleep, then all of a sudden your negative thoughts start to increase as well. Um, and you actually, if we wrap this up with being busy or stress and you start working 65 70 hours of week a week now all of a sudden you know areas of the brain that are radars for threat like the amygdala they start to act up as well and so all of a sudden we're more in a negative mode we're thinking about self a lot for preservation and we've got this this stress level up and so this can lead to a lot of negative self-talk um and we see in the research as we get into middle age you know they call this the U-shaped happiness curve is that happiness levels start to decline to their lowest points in middle age and start to ramp back up around 47, 48. Mm And so, you know, positivity is a really important aspect that we don't realize when life gets busier, especially in middle age, when it gets a bit more serious with work and other things that we are not training this aspect of mindset, which is trainable, right? Positivity is a trainable skill And it's one that the best athletes in the world are using to be the best. And they don't do it because it's a nice thing to do. They do it because it's an essential thing to do. And so I think this is a really key part about, you know, and again, a lot of people aren't going to gravitate towards it initially. It's going to feel a little bit hokey or a little bit, um, but putting pen to paper and, you know, writing down three things in the day that were positive for you and how it made you feel. You don't need to take half an hour to do this. It can be less than two minutes. Um, But to know that positivity is trainable. And so your mindset, how you view things, how you view if there's going to be something great happening next month or next year or you remain in a state of constant worry, that's a trainable skill and we all need to to do that. And so, again, it's been amazing to see some of the elite sports psychologists across many uh, Olympic and, and major sports and how they use that And the response you see from not only elite athletes but the coaching staff, elite coaches, people in um, management, upper management, and so it's definitely one. If you don't naturally gravitate towards it, I would, and you're looking to improve performance, it's it's definitely got to be on the things that you need to start to uh, to address.
1: And just to unpick it a little bit, so is this is this looking at affirmations based around? What you want to achieve or how well you can do something and have you seen differences in men and women like i noticed there seems to be subtle differences that when you speak to a guy he probably almost sees it as it might have even gone better than it did <laughs> or they just seem more upbeat whereas delusional. women are delusional inher- <laughs> delusional. <laughs> But women just seem to be kind of, you know, in the same way, they're more conscientious. And you see that often with girls at Mm -hmm. school at a younger age, you know, they're -hmm. they're a little bit more mature than the boys um, at a younger age, but they also seem more conscientious and more concerned that Mm -hmm. if someone says something that that might be a criticism or that they didn't do it right. And and that's a massive generalization, right? Because there's plenty of boys and men that are like that too. But I just wonder, do you, that inner critic, how do you use an affirmation or affirmations to overcome that, are you writing in the positive of, of what you want to achieve? So, like in the example of an athlete, if they want to win their next competition, how how, do, how would you advise someone to use affirmations in terms of actually physically writing it out?
0: Yeah, and I should probably have mentioned it's it's you know training positivity. There's different methods that you can use, and the one I suggested earlier around noting positive things and then writing out how you feel that would be one method. Affirmations would be another, and that's the idea of you know, with Serena Williams in the book, we talk about how, you know, you can, again, the greatest female tennis player, maybe arguably of all time with a few others. Between, you know, sets, she's writing in a notebook after winning 15, 18 majors, little notes like, I will move up, I will add spin, I will win. You know, these types of things that are positive affirmations. And again, because our brain defaults to thinking about ourselves, and because it defaults to negative thinking, you know, the, the, the river is pulling us down, down current to this negative space. And so if we're not going to, if we're not going to swim against the current a little bit and build positivity, then, you know, once you become stressed and sleep deprived as well, then you can really, it can become a downward spiral in terms of not just your outlook, but in, frankly, in terms of things like low mood, depression, anxiety, all these types of, of conditions. And so, which are all actually symptoms of overtraining in athletes. And for the rest of us, you know sort of under recovery from life if you will because you know the work and the home and everything else doesn't go away and so you know the affirmations can be very short and, and small you know it can just be something that you repeat to yourself something that you want to have happen um, again it could take less than a minute um, there's some strategies actually where you know you get up in the morning you take one good breath and you have one you know intention or affirmation for the day there you go 30 seconds you do it while you're in the shower but these things are have like compound interest. And so they, they start to literally change the way your brain works and the way that you see things. And I think that's where, you know, if you're looking for that edge or you're looking to be able to achieve some of the things that you have, whether it's work or home life, then it becomes really essential. I think all that becomes magnified when you do have, you know, at a certain level in your work or if there are kids at home, if you're taking care of older parents, now all of a sudden those things actually become really essential to be able to feel your best and perform your best.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. It's very powerful over time. Have you found um a tool that with athletes they do? I don't know if you're familiar with um Todd Herman's work in, in terms of the ego effect mm-hmm. and how almost creating an alter ego can be helpful to some people. He talks about how I think it was Beyoncé that created Sasha Fierce and she had this alter ego that would show up on stage. So before she was ready to show up as that person because it was almost so intimidating. She had this alter ego that she would just personify and use. Have you found that at elite level that there are many people using that kind of thing?
0: Well, it's interesting in the book, we talk about professor Kevin Dutton, who's from Oxford university, a psychologist, and he works with psychopaths. He he studies psychopathic behavior. And of course that those are traits. Um, Those are a series of traits. And interestingly, many, CEOs and upper executives share a lot of the psychopathic traits. Now the good news is, and as Kevin Dutton outlines, not the really key ones that make us <laughs> make us psychopaths,
1: <laughs> Dangerous. Uh,
0: There's <sensitive laughs> a few there, but, but they are a collection of traits. And a lot of them are, um, are shared by elite sportsmen and upper executives. And so one of them is, is that's, you know, they talk about being ruthless on the playing field. This is, you know, lack of sort of empathy when you're in the, on the court or sometimes in the boardroom because in certain situations when it's very competitive that can actually work against you um and so there are you know you think of sort of the tiger Woodses of the world uh, michael jordan some of these elite athletes that just you know were ruthless on the playing field and then if you could somehow combine that with being a gentleman and then you know back to a nice person when you get off of it a bit like what you're alluding to with with beyonce and i think we see that with roger federer is maybe the best example of that because he's such a gentleman off the court and when he gets between the lines i mean he is fierce fierce competitor and so that's that idea of finding that balance and it's not an easy flip uh, switch to flip right because it's only a very small handful of people can accomplish that um and so it, it's a it's a tricky line to tread because you don't want to be so unempathetic that now when you go back to your real life you you know you can't relate to people you struggle to have good relationships um but it really is interesting yeah that how do we get into that kind of performance mindset and then when we're away from whether it's the boardroom or the or the playing field how do we come back and just get back to our um you know our regular selves and and our empathetic selves
1: yeah it is it's it's very interesting um can i just ask you sort of to close then what are your um you've shared so much but what are your kind of habits and routines what does a morning and evening routine look like for you dr (laughs) bubs
0: i think this is where uh you know you realize and i've got three little kids at home and it's you know it's difficult same routine, hard,
1: isn't Right, it?
0: <laughs> and especially with covid um you know everyone starts out homeschooling and doing this and that and then all of a sudden you know even you're it's difficult to maintain that kind of rhythm because you know kids inherently know you're not the teacher and they don't behave the same way as they would do in school and these types of things and so uh, you know i think it's it, it really highlights the importance of having a routine because we see with a lot of our athletes and my athletes that I talk with and consult with, you know, it's been a really difficult time, you know, obviously for everyone, but you know, mm. for athletes as well, who are used to a routine, really used to routine. And when that routine gets thrown off, then, you know, it things be- can become more stressful and more uncertain. Um, and that uncertainty leads us to more future state thinking. And that can lead to things like anxiety again, and, and mood. And so, you know, if you can't come back to myself, trying to get back into a rhythm with, with just having a a schedule is is one of the big ones. And because I think like a lot of people, I think at first when we were under this lockdown, it was like, Hey, this is great. Things are different. I don't have to commute. I got more time in the morning. This is wonderful. Uh, But then at a certain point, it's almost like we're kind of floating around about, okay, well, wait a minute. Where's my structure? Where's, where's. um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think trying to to get that morning down is, is key, but, you know, I think it's a great example when you do have, you know, small kids around or whatnot of, of you've got to be adaptable because, uh, and then maybe that's what COVID has taught us as well. Of like there's going to be things that you can't control. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've got to be able to adapt and and find a way to, to be productive. Right. So coffee helps. Yeah, there you go. Coffee sure. in the morning helps. Coffee me. always <laughs>
1: helps. <laughs> coffee helps everything. I'll tell you what should, did surprise but... me. <laughs>
0: Oh, sorry it's like I'm drinking more than I probably should these days but otherwise it's helping.
1: <laughs> yeah coffee's good what surprised me was in the book when you said that athletes drink more and people don't realize it but athletes drink more alcohol than the average person that to me was a was a surprise I thought they would be teetotalers actually
0: yeah they binge drink more so when they do they sort of teetotal or they're out bin you know they they you know it doesn't take much to exceed the four or five units for a binge session but they do uh, they do drink more than the general population so again Athletes are human. I think that's yeah. one of the big things. We yeah. kind of reach the book. They have the same problems we do. You know, a lot of the tips I would give somebody working in an office, you know, are similar to what we would give an athlete. And so that, I think that's where, for a lot of us, we think of them as over there and we're struggling with our own problems, but we have common common concerns and issues. And if, if we look at some of the things that they do in terms of like consistency, you know, not following the fads, but following the principles, then we and working on things like the mental skills, then you can really, you know, excel and, and get past plateaus or roadblocks and really
1: perform your best. Yeah, for sure. I think that's what really came out for me was the consistency with the patience um, that came out of the book, um, being patient as well. Uh, yeah, it's not sexy, sure.
0: but it, it leads to a lot of victories for the, uh, you know, so that's the one to try to sell to the, to the clients and patients is just repeat, 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 develop that consistency, and now all of a sudden you're gonna, you're gonna see some real big, big gains.
1: Yeah. And the power of those small gains is over time is amazing, isn't it? When you look at the research, it's phenomenal. Um, well, thank you so much um, for coming on the show. You've shared so much there and it was so, um, interesting. Is there anything that you haven't shared or any closing comments in these disrupted, difficult times (laughs) that you'd like to leave people with in terms of how they can just make their life a bit better and, and a bit more certain?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, it's, uh, I think, you know, what you eat, how you move and lifestyle factors like sleep and, and mental, emotional stress are, those are the pillars, right? Those are the big rocks. And so, you know, address those and you'll be able to feel better and look better and, and perform your best at work and at home. And, you know, hopefully some of this has helped. And if you, if you enjoyed that, then again, you could check out the book peak if you like, And we do have some programs coming out this fall that are geared towards, um, uh, called peak 40 it will be a, a program coming out around um, supporting health and performance when we're you know forty plus to be able to, to do our best, and so if people want to check that out. Then more than welcome.
1: Oh, brilliant! I'll link to that. When's the program coming out?
0: Uh, so that will actually be in the in likely the end of twenty 2020, twenty, early twenty twenty one, and so you know, I'll have some information coming out about that as we go. But uh, but yeah
1: okay amazing and i will link to the book um peak the new science of athletic performance that's revolutionizing sports an absolutely brilliant book and also where can people find you um in terms of your website social media where are you most active
0: yeah i've got a funny last name so it's easy to find me so drbubs.com, or if you just google dr bubs i'll come up and then uh, at drbubs, you know twitter instagram all those all those areas if you want to ask questions that's the best place to do it
1: amazing thanks again and i will link to that in the show notes thanks for coming on